All right. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us at Foster Source this morning. You are here today to learn all about different therapy options for the children in your care. We are thrilled to welcome Danielle Patterson. She'll tell you a little bit about herself in a minute. She is the founder and the director of the Patterson Center for Resiliency um, in Colorado Springs. She is pretty impressive it, with her, her knowledge and her experience. And she's also one of the therapists that we refer foster parents to. Um, Danielle, thank you. Thank you for, for doing this. When I reached out and said, I need something like this, you said, I'll do it. I'll put it together. And we really appreciate it. This isn't a, a death by PowerPoint, friends. Please submit your questions. We want to get yeah, your questions answered. Do keep in mind that we're recording, so don't uh, give anything too specific about your, your kiddo, but for sure we can help you out. Danielle's presentation is uploaded under the handouts tab in the classroom, so don't worry about feverishly taking notes. It is there for you to view anytime after the class. Awesome. Danielle, welcome to Foster Source and take it away. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today, which means when I get jazzed about something, I talk really fast. So Renee, please um, let me know if I go right, I'm here to hold talk you way too fast. That's good. So to get started, I want to hear a little bit about who we have in the room. So where you're from, what's your connection to foster care? If you're a foster parent, a caseworker, a CASA, a former foster youth, um, if you have children in your home, how many and how old are they? And what do you hope to learn from this training? And this will kind of help influence um, what we really focus on in the training. Sounds great. Yeah, put some stuff in the chat, guys. I actually didn't look at registration beforehand. We may have some out-of-staters. So we'll see. I know for the most part, likely foster parents who are or and or already have adopted as well and looking for amongst the myriad of, of therapy options, help yes. with knowing, you know, what 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 is what is best for my child? Yes. And therapists speak a whole different language. We have an acronym for everything. And I've been doing this for years. And even sometimes still, I'll see an acronym and think, what is that? Yeah, um, for sure. So if you're confused and overwhelmed, you're not alone in that. There's a lot of options and I'm still learning about options um, every day that I didn't know of before. So we have foster parents of a three-year-old with us for the last 18 months. Awesome. Wife and I are both here. One foster placement, 13 months old, and recently reunified a two-and-a-half-year-old after two years. So that's, yeah, that's tough. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Foster adopted parent with some language, behavior, and motor skill issues. Okay. Gro our child has a gross motor delay, is in PT. So yeah, that, this all sounds familiar to me. Mm -hmm. OT, PT, play therapy, speech. Yep, all the teams. ABA, you know, mm -hmm. what is best? We don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyone with older kids, and by older, I mean like late elementary and up. For me, I mean, age eight, um, that's, I guess, mid elementary, but. Okay. 
Maybe we'll wait a few more moments for people to jump in there in the chat. But while we're doing that, um, I want to tell you a little bit about me. So here are my two firstborn. Um, that's Pippa and Nala. Um, and like Renee said, I'm the owner and clinical director of the Patterson Center for Resiliency. We're located in Colorado Springs, um, but we're doing a lot virtually. So we're seeing people all over the state right now, which is really exciting. Um, I got my bachelor's of social work from Azusa Pacific and my master's of social work from Colorado State. I'm a licensed clinical social worker um, and I'm a former foster youth um, in my high school years. And then I've been a foster parent for almost four years now. Um, I've fostered 14 children and I currently have an 11 year old in my home. Um, my contact information is below. Um, your slides that you got probably don't have that. So if you want to write that down, um, now will be a good time. I'm happy to answer questions after um, the presentation if you want to call or email me. Um, but I'm so excited to be here today with you guys. Yes, we are excited. We have one more. Um, we currently have a 14 month old emplacement that they've had since two days old. And they also have an eight year old daughter who has been in speech therapy since she was three. Okay, awesome. Awesome. So for today, we'll talk about um, several different types of services, primarily focused on the mental health side of things. Um, but of course, PT and speech also impact our kids mental health as well and their ability to communicate and get their needs met. Um, each of the slides will be either yellow, red, or green. Green will mean, generally speaking, this is a pretty good service to be looking at. Um, yellow means, you know, there might be some concerns. Um, maybe this is a good service if the clinician's well-trained, or maybe this is a good service for a very specific need of a child, but I wouldn't say that most foster kids this would be a good service for. There might be some hesitancy around that um, to make sure it's a good fit for your family. And red, I would say, generally speaking, there's either not enough research or you can find better. Um, and you can find better fairly easily to the point where I say it's probably not worth your time to seek out this type of therapy or this type of intervention. Um, now, I am not God, so that doesn't mean that a green service is going to guarantee you a positive experience. And that doesn't mean that red services are terrible. We should never use them. Um, this is kind of generally speaking, what's going to get you the most bang, bang for your buck when you are searching through hundreds of profiles on psychology today or trying to figure out what do we do? What do we do next? Um, we'll also talk about how do you decide how much is enough and how much is not enough? Um, there are so many different types of services that you could do, and we want to be strategic so that the child can still live a normal life and they're still getting their needs met therapeutically. Right, they're um, not going to therapy every day for three hours. Yes, some you know. kids might need that, but by and large, probably not. And yeah. does the Patterson Center see children and adults? We do, we're seeing 10 and up right now um, because we're not great at virtual therapy with the littles and we won't be well, the first sure. to admit that. Um, but typically it's seven and up when we go back in person, but right now and do you accept Medicaid for the children? We do, we do. That's our primary um, source of, of payment. So we do accept Medicaid. Super. Yeah. Um, so how to find a good provider. Um, many of you probably experienced that your caseworker just hands you a name and a number and that's kind of the end of it. So I want to give you the power back to interview your providers and decide, is this a good fit for our family or not? 
Um, and then making the most of your providers. So it's not just you drop off your kid for 55 minutes a week or someone comes to the house for 30 minutes or something like that. Um, but we're actually involving the provider in your child's whole care. Okay, so in the chat again, what has your experience been with services? Has it been positive or negative with some of these services um, that you've experienced so far? Well, people are typing. I, I can share that when our little guy started play therapy when he was about two, we loved his therapist. She mm -hmm. was fantastic and he loved her. But after two years, she came to us and said, I, we've made no progress, you, you know? Yeah. So I appreciated that she recognized that and yeah. came to us and said, we're going to have to look at something different. Um, someone says generally positive, lots of turnover. That is true. Yes. yes. So exposure to several styles and skill sets. Mm -hmm. And then someone says virtual therapy for play and speech has not felt very effective. Yeah. yeah I'm I, with you on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think don't most kids start with like your community health center. I know up here in Adams, we start at community reach and those do fantastic therapists, but they do tend to be the therapists right out of school and th they do jump around a little bit. So, and I think for, for any provider, that's, that's tough to have to keep switching. Yeah. Especially with our kids with attachment issues and with our kids who we know they're probably going to need long-term services. Um, most of our kids aren't what we would call the worried well, where, you know, there's mild to moderate anxiety, depression, situational stress, anxiety, and that's it. Um, if that was it for our kids, we'd be very grateful. Um, so going to a community mental health center, which I did my time there, that's where I got my, my first job after my master's program. And I was there during school as well. And then um, the minute I got my license, I was out, which is pretty common. And so that might not be the best fit for most of our kids who need a really higher level of care and have a greater impact if a clinician leads them. Yeah. Okay. Moving along. So we'll start with little ones, which just sounds like everyone has at least one little one in here. Um, I will say I'm not a play therapy expert. Um, so I did a lot of networking with some of my colleagues on this piece, um, but I will do my best to share what I've experienced um, with the, the small children that have been in my care, as well as all my friends are therapists. So we talk about this a lot over dinner. <laughs> um, so I'll do my best, but please, please, please ask questions. Um, throughout this presentation. And Renee, maybe when we finish the chunk on the little ones, we can answer some questions before we sure. go on to the next. Sure, but yeah, don't hesitate to submit your questions as we're going. What's the youngest age that you fostered, Danielle? I had a micro preemie. Okay. Yeah, and then my oldest um, was 17. So truly the lifespan Absolutely. my house. Yeah. yeah. Did you even as a therapist find it challenging to find services yes. that were appropriate? Yes. Yes, I did. Part of that was people wouldn't call me back, um, which was really confusing for me. And then part of it was if there was a clinician I respected, they were probably my friend. And so my child couldn't see them. Um, but then, you know, I don't have a free pass to get to the front of a wait list. There were still wait lists and a lot of difficulty finding a good fit for our family. And yeah, this, this comment fits right in there. Someone says, um, early intervention has been a great experience getting PT for our current kiddo. Mm -hmm. However, a previous placement clearly needed more therapy than she was getting. Mm -hmm. 
And while we got some started, despite our best efforts, she ended up reunifying before we could get her started in yes. six months passed between the time she was assessed and when she left. Yes. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, whenever possible, it's not going to be beautiful, but whenever possible, how can we get a provider that can, the provider can come see my child when they're in my home and ideally when they're in their bio parents home, because that often does happen. You're on a wait list for months and then you finally get services and, oh, look, we're reunifying. And that's hard because that can sometimes restart that six month wait for that child when they move to another county. Um, so we will start with non-directive play therapy, also called child-centered play therapy. Um, this, I would say, is a rad for most conditions, um, trauma or not. Um, it's very easy to find providers, um, and, and usually they'll treat from toddlers to middle to late elementary. Um, the child leads the session, which means that the child can avoid whatever topics that they like, um, which is good for autonomy but also maybe not ideal when we have certain things we need to work on. Like if the child's having tantrums in this model, the therapist can't bring up Johnny's tantrums in the session. Or I've been in staffings before as a professional where there's a play therapist on the team who's saying, my modality does not allow me to discuss mom or to bring up a change in visits or anything like that with the child. And, and that can make things kind of tricky um, in these specific cases where we have a lot of things we need to cover in therapy that we need to bring in as grownups into the room. Um, there's a slow and low rate of progress. It often takes years as Renee was um, mentioning. Um, the provider must be very good at what they are doing to actually make progress. A lot of people have taken a workshop on play therapy and will do play therapy, and that's not enough to move forward are really tough kids. Um, can you find good non-directive play therapists? Yes. Yes, you can. Are you going to spend months finding them? Yes. Yes, you probably are, unless you get lucky the first few times. Um, so I would say non-directive play therapy is probably not ideal if you have a child with significant behaviors or significant delays that you need to see progress at pretty soon um, for the health and safety of that child. Well, yeah, I mean, even as adults, that when we first enter therapy, we have a hard time getting to what the core of what actual issue mm -hmm. is. Yes. So with kids who can't even necessarily verbalize their, their anxiety, I mean, how, how are they supposed to do that? Right. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I truly don't understand really how non-directive play therapy works. Theoretically, I, I can't figure out, um, how does this make progress? Um, they do a lot of observing themes and identifying themes in the child, yes. Yes. um, which is helpful. I think as an assessment tool, not as treatment. Yeah, our kid, a lot of his play centered around safety, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the playhouse is on fire. Let's get everyone where they're yep. safe. Yep. So of course that helped us, I guess it, as, a, as a caregiver, it kind of helps you know what they're, what they're coming from. Um, but again, for us, it, it wasn't a, a good 
method for making progress, I guess. Yeah. And this can be helpful if then the clinician is spending a significant amount of time with you as the caregiver, working on ways to help that child feel safe, work through these behaviors, et cetera. Um, but then the primary focus becomes family therapy rather than non-direct play therapy. Um, I would say this is fine for the first few weeks as an assessment tool, but if you're still a year later doing non-directed play therapy and not seeing progress, that's kind of what I see a lot. But I think you can find a better service. Okay, TFIPT, trauma-focused integrated play therapy. Very difficult to find. I could not find anyone in Colorado Springs that did it. They report ages five to 17. If you've ever met a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old, they are not gonna do anything that says play therapy in it. Um, they are not interested in doing that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm confused about why they say high schoolers would benefit from this play therapy. It uses post-traumatic play to help children share their story, which I'm on board with this, fully on board with that, but it's largely non-directive. So you can never steer the child in the direction of actually working on that post-traumatic play and sharing their story. There's also no research to support it. So I wonder where, if it's offered at all, do you think children's does it? Not to my knowledge. I couldn't find anyone that did it. Interesting. Um, I think it's probably just not expanded enough to give it good research to begin with. Um, but I'm just not a fan of non-directive modalities, especially with foster youth. Okay, PCIT, this one some of you've probably heard of, parent-child interaction therapy, somewhat easy to find, ages two to seven. And this is a really interesting um, resource where the parent wears like a bug in their ear and the provider's on the other side of a window and the child and you can't see the provider, but they're watching you. And they provide feedback in the moment into your ear to tell you what to do next or what to say or how to interact with the child. So parent-child interaction. Um, it works well for children with big behaviors like tantrums, um, fit, disobedience, but it's not specifically designed for trauma. And so when you get into the phase two of PCIT, if you enjoy TBRI in your home, it's going to clash. Um, it uses things like behavior modification tools, like charts, um, disciplinary kind of things like um, separating the child, things like that, which... Um, I'm not gonna say TBRI works for everyone because I would never say something works for everyone. Um, for some children, this might be appropriate, but for the majority of our children with trauma, that second phase of PCIT is not the most effective and does not build felt safety with the care provider. Um, I can share that, sorry, I can share that we did PCIT uh, through Children's Hospital in, in Aurora and it was due to big, big behaviors. Yep. We were basically building our lives around the next freak out. Um, we did about six months of it. The, the, I'll put the provider in the chat. He was, he's one of like five people in Colorado that, that does it. Very few people do this, um, all the way, like certified through PCIT.org in, in Colorado. This was life-changing for us. Um, you are correct. It did not address the trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it really, really helped for us and it was covered by Medicaid. Yes. It's a, it's an investment as a time investment. Yep. We had to go to children's every week, every week for six months in the evenings and you could not miss there's homework involved. Um, and it's pretty humbling because yeah, you're wearing a, a 
piece in your ear yeah. and <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it for us for behaviors, huge help. Yes. Yes. Um, it does have strong research to support those behaviors. It does not have really trauma specific research. I would say ideal situation. If you have a child with big behaviors, can you find someone that's trained in PCIT and one of the trauma modalities? And maybe you start with PCIT. And once the child has built that trust and felt safety with you, move along to a different modality to address the trauma. So then you're not having a change in provider. That to me would be perfect dream world. Um, that might be challenging to find. Um, but if you find someone that says PCIT and one of the green ones that we'll get to, um, I would say go for it with PCIT if you have a child with behaviors. Alderian play therapy. Um, so this is named after a researcher, a, a psychologist. Um, somewhat easy to find providers. Um, so this is the thing too, when someone says they're a play therapist, you have to ask questions about what does that mean? Does that mean that you use toys and art and games in normal, normal therapy? Or does that mean you are specifically trained in a type of therapy? Um, I would say you can find excellent play therapists without having the whole fancy certification um, because those often are like a pay to play sort of thing. You have to pay a lot of money to get that fancy certification when you can find trainings in this that are beautifully done for like a fraction of the price as a clinician. So I would ask them, what trainings have you done? How long have you been doing this? How many clients have you had? Um, how many hours of training? If it was a weekend workshop, maybe not. Um, if they've done several trainings over the last few years, even without that certification, you're probably in a good spot. Um, so that, that would take a little investigating on your part. And we'll talk about towards the end, some of those questions to ask the provider. Um, if a provider's not willing to answer these questions, you don't want that provider. Um, you have the right to know all of these things. Um, so side note, uh, Algerian play therapy is toddlers to middle to late elementary. So we're gonna like past 11. Um, progress is often slower than some other therapies. However, in the research I've read, I think that's largely due to age. Um, how do you get a four-year-old to make a lot of progress in therapy when their language is limited and um, just where they're at developmentally? Um, it's therapist-led. So this is a play therapy where the therapist has activities that they'll bring into the room and they might use books, they might use games, they might use art, they might use a playroom, they might um, use certain puppets or, or different um, therapeutic tools um, to address whatever the child's bringing into the room. So it's not like non-directive where the child just does whatever they want, more or less, for 50 minutes. Um, but the therapist then takes that data to influence other activities that they're doing. Um, and so this is something I really like, and the research is pretty sound in it too. Um, the use of play to lower arousal and build coping skills. So doing it in their natural environment. Play is the language of children and play communicates things in ways that words can't in a child. Um, and so the clinician will develop metaphors or stories to help the child understand or process the trauma. Um, so we have a whole collection of books that don't specifically say trauma anywhere in them, but it talks about um, a bear maybe getting lost in the woods and feeling sad that it misses its mom. Okay, this is a good metaphor to use with this child to help them feel seen and heard and put some language to that for them. Um, caregivers are also encouraged to participate, and this style of therapy looks at the whole system. So it's not 
I'm going to drop off my kid for an hour, fix them. I'll come back later. Um, you're very involved in the therapeutic process. A general sort of rule of thumb for um, therapy with children is if they're about 10 and under, mom or dad, whoever the caregiver is, should be involved in about half of every session. Um, if they are older, especially as they get into their teen years and they have um, more privacy and, and that's more important to them, mom and dad should be involved at least in a few minutes of therapy to talk about what's been going on at home at the beginning and at the end. Okay, this is generally kind of some stuff that we're working on. So if you are in play therapy and they're not including you, that's a little concerning because one of the main components of therapy is to help the parent build safety in the home and help them communicate with the child. Trauma play, I really like. Um, I don't want to do play therapy as a professional, but if I were, it would be trauma play. It is somewhat difficult to find. Uh, the next slide will have an easier one to find that is very similar. They're, they're based off of each other. Um, this, this is, again, toddlers to middle to late elementary. Uses different phases to help the child regulate, learn to trust adults, and share their story. It's both directive and non-directive in different elements, depending on what phase of treatment they're in and where their level of trust is with both their caregivers and the provider. And it incorporates a lot of really well-researched modalities, although this therapy is newer, so it itself doesn't have a lot of research but the theoretical underpinning of it is quite sound and, and, and excellent. Um, so it includes therapy, which we'll talk about next, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I know I said you can find better. This is the better for small children. And child-centered play therapy, which is that non-directive, but it, it includes that in ways that are actually helpful for the assessment and the building rapport. Play again, somewhat difficult to find. Toddlers to the elementary, high level of involvement of the caregiver, which I really like to see. Building trust, ability to co-regulate with the caregiver. They use games, challenges, nurturing activities to build that bond and that felt safety. And it has excellent therapeutic research. Um, so trauma play and therapy play, very much the same thing. Trauma play is just more centered on trauma, whereas therapy play is more generalized, but if you can find a good trauma-informed provider um, that does therapy, I think you'll be in a good spot. Can you talk a little bit about, it's so the caregiver is involved, the caregiver is participating. Mm -hmm. We've had kids who don't want to upset the caregiver yeah. sometimes be, if they express the loss of bio parent how do they handle that in that situation because I've seen before yeah. where kids just do what they can to to please you as the caregiver mm -hmm. even though their hurt is is so it's severe for their uh, bio family yeah 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 so that's a really good question and I can't speak to that for every child because it will vary a little bit based on the child and the situation um, but a high level of involvement of the caregiver doesn't mean the caregiver's there every second um, but it means more, okay, Johnny's having this challenge. We're going to now bring mom into the room or whoever that person is and teach mom how to soothe Johnny in those moments, how to understand Johnny's perspective, how mom can attune to Johnny's needs in those moments. Does that answer the question, Renee? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So that's it for younger children. Um, any questions? about um, 
therapies for younger children. Yes, we do have a question that came in. Let me pull it up here. Uh, we have a kiddo that we know very little about her parents and she doesn't show any issues that are not age-related behaviors. Do you think it would be good to try to get her into therapy since we don't really know anything about her parents? The, the child is 18 months old. Okay. So at 18 months old, PCIT, um, and there's one other one that I'm blanking on the name of, are really your only two options. Um, she's not going to be able to engage in traditional play therapy probably at this point, um, at least until two, maybe three, depending on her maturity. Um, I would say not knowing anything about her parents um, would be sort of irrelevant to the question. Um, you can be what we call genetically loaded. So maybe there's all these different conditions and parents and you could be fine. Or you could have no family history and have some pretty significant mental health conditions. Um, so I would say if she's doing really well and you don't have any concerns right now, I think you can wait to put her in therapy until or if um, concerns arise later. And I, I would say too that, you know, for our kiddos from trauma, it's, it's kind of, it's something that they have to kind of reprocess as they continue to grow, especially through puberty and whatnot. So you may be going in and out of therapy for many, yes. many years. Someone says we did CPP child parent psychotherapy around that age. And it was really helpful. That said, our little one had a lot of pretty obvious anxiety. So we were pretty motivated to get her in. Mm -hmm. That's good feedback. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. And I'll add to your previous comment, Renee, it's very common that when a child enters a new developmental milestone, that they show signs of maybe needing therapy again. So if they did play therapy as a toddler and that was wonderful and they stabilized, then as they become seven, eight, nine, and now they're in the new developmental phase, they might need a short stint again. As they develop more abstract thoughts in the preteen years, they might need again. As they enter dating and relationships, you might see it again. And that doesn't mean you're starting over. That means, okay, there's new challenges that didn't exist before because of where they were developmentally. Sure. And maybe they're a little, they're ready to go a little bit deeper. You know, they feel a little bit more secure in exploring some of that past trauma. Uh, yes. Someone else said we had the same experience with CPP for the same reason. Um, Danielle, is it coming up later, the best places to find this, um, these different therapies? Like what clinics? Or, right. Like where, like is psychology today, the best place to go to type in TheraPlay Colorado Medicaid and see what comes up or. So we do have a slide later about that. Okay. Um, I didn't include any specific clinics because we have people from all over the country. Sure. Yeah. Um, if you're in Colorado Springs, I'm happy to help you. I, I know nothing about Denver services. Um, but yes, um, psychology today is a good resource. Also, if there's like any mom groups for your local area on Facebook, ask me on there as well. Um, a lot of word of mouth will get you good mileage because we can write whatever we want on our website. Right. right, um, right. But actually having someone who's been there, I think is really important. And if there's a, um, a specific type of therapy that you're interested in and you aren't able to find something on psychology today, we can always post it on, on yeah. our Facebook page. And there's always foster parents that say, oh, we used this person. She's fantastic, yep. et cetera. Yep. Any other questions? I think we're good. Okay.
So this is older children. So I'm thinking like middle, late elementary and above through the teen years. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm gonna get crucified for this by some people, um, but I would say CB, CBT is a red because you can find better. Um, CBT is not wrong. Um, it's a great modality for anxiety, depression, things of that nature. Um, it's very easy to find providers. Um, it can work for about seven and above, um, but it focuses on changing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, which can come across as almost offensive to our, our kids. Um, and so if you have a 12-year-old coming in with some significant trauma and the therapist says, just take a bubble bath and you'll feel better. Mm, yeah, that's... that doesn't feel good. What, what, what really is CBT? Can you tell us a little bit more? Is, is it a talk therapy? Yes. And how, how do you know you're in CBT? Yeah. So first I would say you should always ask your provider what modality or what intervention, what kind of therapy are you using? If they can't tell you, that's a little concerning. Um, in the early weeks, they might not have solidified which route they're going to go and that's normal. But if they can't say, you know, I think this would work well, or I'm looking at this, or, you know, when I'm done with my assessment in the next couple of weeks, I would say these are the two options we're looking at. Or maybe you're months in and they still can't tell you what they're doing. Um, I would say that's concerning. So always ask your provider, what type of therapy are we looking at? And always ask for a copy of the treatment plan. Even if you don't understand what's being written on the treatment plan, ask for a copy for your records because you might have a therapy later, the child might have a therapy later where they're asking, oh, what kind of therapy did you do? And they're like, I don't know. Um, so always ask questions about that. But CBT focuses on increasing our understanding of a trigger, causes a, a thought, a feeling, and a behavior. That in itself is not wrong to teach children with trauma. I think that can be actually very helpful for them to understand how this chain reaction happens. Um, but straight CBT will then say, okay, we're gonna change the thoughts, we're gonna change the behaviors, and we're gonna just use some coping skills. And that is great for anxiety and depression. When trauma is driving it, it can almost feel gaslighting sometimes to clients. Um, and we have so many better options that I would say going the straight CBT route is probably not very helpful right now. Um, did that answer your question, Renee, about what CBT is? Yeah. So my understanding from based, based on that is it kind of helps you manage symptoms, mm -hmm. but doesn't dive into a cause. Right. Is that right? Right. Um, it's traditionally talk therapy. Although when you've got like a seven-year-old, you're probably gonna do a lot of games and art activities and things like that too. An eclectic approach, very easy to find. You'll find it for all ages. It typically means the provider uses multiple interventions all at once, which is different than, okay, this, this approach is not working. So we're going to pivot and try something else. But this means every session you come in, we're using some different approach, just depending on what I feel like is best for you that time. There's no research to support this. Um, and that means that there is no treatment that is evidence-based that is being used with your child. Part of why there's no research is how do you research using a different intervention every time? Um, it often relies on the client to direct therapy. So you'll hear things like, what do you want to talk about today? And that's a fine question to ask, but if that's the end of it and there's no prompting um, there's no, what about this? There's no, well, I had thought that maybe we could talk about this. Or last week you said, this, maybe we can work on that more. 
if the client's expected to direct all of the treatment, I don't know many children or adolescents, even adults that can do that reliably. Multi-system therapy or MST, somewhat easy to find. You'll find this more in the large community mental health centers or maybe some larger clinics in your area that are private. Um, usually children ages 12 to 17, and it focuses on children with deviant or antisocial behavior. And that's the language that they use, um, which to me is not very trauma-informed because our kids aren't deviant or antisocial, they're hurting, they're traumatized. They, they have good reason for the behaviors. Maybe not behaviors we like or that they even like, but oftentimes the behaviors are understandable at the end of the day. Um, I do like that and involves the whole family and other systems or supports like um, a coach, a teacher, things like that. Um, and it's primarily used to prevent a child from even entering foster care. So sometimes it's used in foster care with um, really challenging adolescents, but you'll see it more often in the bio home to prevent the child from being removed from the home. It's intensive and short-term several hours a week for um, usually only three to five months. So that also concerns me when we have a knowingly short-term therapy for a child with trauma and likely attachment issues. Sometimes they'll have short-term providers and there's nothing we can do about that. But a, a therapy that's set up specifically to be short-term, I would say is probably not the most trauma-informed option that we have. It also focuses on behavior modification rather than what's driving this behavior, what's underneath all of this and getting to really the root cause. And again, um, behavior modification can feel really kind of insulting to our kids who are like, well, I did this thing because of this. And in their minds, that's justified. And it's probably very logical to us as adults too, not that it's okay, but still probably logical. And so when we say, just stop doing that or something to that effect, um, that can really invalidate the trauma that they've experienced. Um, it uses an eclectic approach at the end of the day to treat the child and their symptoms, which again, not my favorite. I think you can probably do better. And it is evidence-based in, re in reducing severe behaviors in both the parent and the child. So there is a parent coaching component to it, um, which can be helpful for some. But overall, I would say we can find a better service than MST. Animal assisted therapy. I love this picture of this dog. This dog is living his or her best life and she's just loving it. Um, it looks like my dog, that is not my dog, but she would love being there. Um, you can use animal assisted therapy with all ages. Um, you can do equine therapy, hippotherapy. I just love saying hippotherapy. It's farm therapy, um, dogs. There might be other animals involved, but those are the main ones that you'll see. It's hard to find certified providers. Both the handler and the animal must be trained and must be trained together. So my two dogs, they're working on becoming animal assisted therapy dogs. Um, if I hold the certification for them, no one else can use them. And I can't just bring in another dog and use that dog. Um, so it's very specific. Um, you should make sure that the dog or whatever animal you use has the correct certification for that animal. If there's been any history of aggression or bites, that dog is out, so they lose their certification. Um, so be very careful about that. There's a difference between you're an animal assisted therapist 
versus I'm a therapist who brings my nice fluffy dog to the office. Bringing your nice fluffy dog to the office isn't wrong. I love a nice dog in the office, um, but just know like, what are we actually doing? Is this animal assisted therapy or is this just a dog in the office that helps my kid feel motivated or grounded when they come in? And there's a difference to that. And, and either one might be fine. I would always make sure that the dog is certified um, to be a therapy dog because that comes with all kinds of insurance and they've been tested and trained and, and you have some idea that this dog is at least relatively safe. Of course, we can't guarantee that it's still an animal at the end of the day, but I would be wary of a therapist just bringing their untrained dog into the office and having your traumatized child with severe behaviors in a closed room with that animal. Um, so there is a potential safety risk there. There's also the potential loss of the animal and how this impacts a child with attachment wounds or trust issues. If they lose that therapist, they're losing the therapist and the animal. And so we just wanna be careful of how we proceed with that. It might be fine, um, but we wanna be mindful of that element. Um, the animal can help the child to co-regulate, to build trust, to form relationships in healthy ways. Um, but I would also say it should be used with another therapy. So are they doing this trauma therapy and the dog is also incorporated somehow, or is your child just going in and petting a dog? Um, those are two different things. Um, so I would just know, what am I actually signing my child up for? So um, there's a ranch, flying horse ranch out in Larkspur, Colorado, that they do wonderful respite with their farm animals, but it's not therapy. And so if you're looking for respite with farm animals and there's still some of those benefits of co-regulation and bonding and, and all those wonderful things, excellent. If you're looking for the child to do trauma work during that time, they're not. So just know what you're getting into and make sure that the handler and the animal is trained, insured, certified, whatever is needed for that kind of animal. Art, dance, or music therapy. Um, it can be difficult, again, to find certified providers, one with openings, but two that have appropriate training. So um, if to call yourself an art therapist, you actually have to have a master's in art therapy. Um, you can't just be a therapist who uses art. Um, that is a fine thing to do, but just be aware of what you're getting yourself into. Is this more of like an art club that your child is going to, or is this actually art therapy? Is this a dance class that just happens to be run by someone maybe in school or an intern or a therapist, or is this actually having some therapeutic elements to it? Um, going to art club, not a problem, but just be aware of what you're getting your child into. Um, so for true art, dance, or music therapy, it can be difficult to get it covered by insurance. This is partly because insurance doesn't want to pay for things that they don't think are real. Um, not that it's not real, but when you, you know, talk to the owner of the insurance company and you're asking, will you pay for this child to go dance for an hour? They're going to say no. Um, even though that there's good research to support some of these expressive therapies. Um, it may allow the child to avoid. So if they're dancing or doing music, they might be able to just kind of check out, not talk about anything. And that may actually be really beneficial for kids who are so stuck in a fight or flight response. We can't even imagine using words and then expressing themselves verbally at this point. However, you know your child best. And if you find that they are just doing maybe drum therapy, and that's the only therapy they'll go to and they're using it to avoid, 
that might be another conversation. Um, so it will depend on the child and where they're at and what the provider is doing to determine if this is actually an appropriate therapy or not for them. I would say by and large, if your kid's in art, dance, or music therapy, and they're doing another therapy too, it's not going to hurt. It's, it's probably going to be motivating for them. Um, I would be hesitant though, if this is the only type of therapy that they're doing, that might be okay for some children, um, but it might not get you progress that you're looking for with other children. Um, I will also say that if your child is going to one of these therapies and they do work up some stuff inside of themselves, some different feelings come up, um, the caregiver, whether that's you or a bio parent or someone else has to be able to hold those big feelings that they don't have the words to express when they come home. PFCBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. I know what I said about CBT and I stand by what I said, um, but TFCBT trauma-focused is, is a different animal. Um, it's based off of CBT. Um, but it is much more trauma-informed. It's easy to find providers. Um, it's probably the main modality that people who treat children and adolescents with trauma are trained in. It's 35 bucks to get, so pretty easy to get that training. Um, it treats children through adulthood. Um, once they enter adulthood, you'll hear it called CPT or cognitive processing therapy. It's more or less the same thing with some differences. So the child and the caregiver will learn coping skills together. Um, if you've ever had an older child and they go to therapy and they learn coping skills and you have no idea what those coping skills are and how to support them between sessions, that can be frustrating and overwhelming and confusing. The child also learns what abuse is, why children enter foster care, what the foster care system means, what court means. They get a lot of what we call psychoeducation around the general foster care experience, maybe without adding details about their case that, that are maybe not appropriate for a child to hear, but just general things about, well, why am I here? Like what happened? Um, they learn about boundaries, stranger danger, um, self-safety to prevent future victimization if that's relevant to the child. Um, they learn a little bit about how to express their feelings and stick up for themselves if that's appropriate for them. Ultimately, the child will write their trauma, their trauma story and share it with a trusted caregiver. Um, but that trusted caregiver has also been prepped on how to appropriately validate that experience for the child, hold that story for them. And, and it's almost like a sharing of the pain. So the child doesn't have to carry it all by themselves anymore. Um, there can be some controversy on some DHS cases about who that child is going to share that story with. Um, DHS might have their ideas about who the child should or should not share the story with. Um, and I would say at the end of the day, that's the child's decision of who they want to hear their story and who they want to hold their story. Um, this may include confronting the perpetrator if there was a biological parent that they're returning to or they still have a relationship with, um, that they might share that story with the caregiver, potentially also with the foster parent if they feel comfortable with that. Um, and then ideally the biological parent is able to acknowledge and validate and ultimately sort of apologize for the trauma and abuse that the child endured. Um, that also becomes a little bit of a legal conundrum because it can come up in court as an admonition. So sometimes parents 
and at the advice of their attorneys will refuse to accept the child's trauma story. And that can be heart-wrenching for the child to get to this point in therapy and then not be able to confront their abuser like they want to. And other times they don't want to confront their abuser and that's okay too, but you'll see this often. Um, there's really strong research to support TFCBT. TST, trauma systems therapy, difficult to find providers. I only know of a few places in the state that are doing it. When I previously worked at Aspen Point, I was on the trauma systems therapy team. I tried to get it in my clinic and it was a insane amount of money to get the um, licensure to be able to have it in our clinic. Um, again, it's like a pay to play sort of thing. But if you can find, I think Aurora Mental Health offers it. There's somewhere in Steamboat, Aspen Point, like now Diverse Health in Colorado Springs offers it. It is excellent. Primarily, you'll see it with older children, so around nine plus, um, just because it requires a little more communication skills and some of these other modalities. Families and systems are highly involved. It's a large time commitment. You might have the child's individual therapy, therapy with the bio parents, therapy with the foster parents, maybe someone of those adults are in their own individual therapy as well. So it is quite involved in the early stages until the child stabilizes. Um, it allows the caregiver to begin to notice patterns in the child's triggers, which they call cat hairs. So instead of a, a cat being in the environment and a cat is dangerous to mice, um, they use this metaphor of the cat hair is there, which is not dangerous to the mice, but reminds the mice of the danger of the cat. And when our brains are in trauma, we can't separate the two. Um, so we remove triggers from the environment to allow for healing and felt safety to emerge. A triggered brain cannot heal, cannot calm down. And then there's a slow, intentional reintroduction of those triggers, if appropriate, um, so that the child can learn to feel safe in their normal world again. Much like TFCBT, um, the therapy sort of ends with the child telling their trauma story to someone that they feel safe with. Um, this is a newer modality. So the research is emerging, but the research is so far very promising. And theoretically, it is very sound as far as this should work pretty well. EMDR was a really big buzzword a few years ago and has slowed down a little bit, but is still a pretty popular intervention. Um, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, relatively easy to find providers. Um, younger children can't really consent, and so there's some ethical things around that. And it can be a very intense and potentially dysregulating um, intervention. So that means it can take months for the child to be ready to actually do that therapy, um, which is also not uncommon in some of those other interventions where, you know, it might take months for the child to get ready to write their trauma story. Um, so EMDR is a weird thing. Um, the research really supports its efficacy, its ability to heal people. Um, but we don't know how it works, really. We only know that it does work. Um, so the child or the client will begin to bring up a memory or a piece of a memory or a trigger in their mind, and then we'll use what's called bilateral stimulation. So either moving the eyes across the midline by following something, or you might use buzzers, one in both hand, alternating maybe earphones and noise in one ear and then the other, something similar to that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and the idea is 
we're activating both sides of the brain at the same time so that they can talk to each other and we can reprocess um, that memory to be stored instead of in the emotional part in the brain of more in the narrative or the filing cabinet part of the brain. Um, works very well. There's a 90% success rate in using EMDR. Um, something I haven't actually seen this myself, um, but I have heard of that some courts may not like it. If you have a very contested case, um, some defense attorneys will say, well, EMDR created false memories and now we can't trust the child's testimony. I haven't heard that come up. I've seen lots of foster kids do EMDR. I haven't seen that come up personally. Lots of foster kids use EMDR, but that's just something to be aware of if you have a highly contested court case. I wanna mention for EMDR, I started seeing a therapist when we were uh, fostering. And initially it was just, you know, talk therapy and she, she's EMDR certified. So she mentioned it at first, you know, and I was like, you're not hypnotizing me, whatever. Yeah. But um, <laughs> about six months in, once I really trusted her and something came up and she said to me, we can, we can break this down and talk through it for the next several weeks or months, or we could try EMDR. And I tried EMDR and it was life-changing for me. Yes. Yes. Very, very effective for me. It was, um, I wore headphones and held a little gadget in each hand mm -hmm. and the headphone would beep on one side. And on that same side, the gadget would vibrate. Yep. And then it goes to the other side and you can control the speed of which it goes back and forth. You can tell your provider, you know, give me 30 seconds. It's usually like 30 seconds or so of that. And then you break in, okay, what came up? And then your therapist kind of says, okay, either go with that or try to focus on this feeling. Uh, it, I cannot advocate enough for EMDR. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know for the children, but for, as a caregiver, life-changing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And EMDR might also be used in conjunction with another modality. So something you'll often see with pretty severe or chronic trauma is maybe the child did the TFCBT, the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. They told their trauma story. They're still having symptoms. Now, maybe they'll tell parts of their trauma story while they're doing that bilateral simulation to kind of give them an extra edge on being able to process that experience. Um, so EMDR is extremely effective and it's quick in its efficacy once you get to that point. Um, so when you do EMDR training, the first day you pick a partner and you do EMDR with each other. And that was like, for me, like the worst, like first day of school cafeteria lunch experience. Um, <laughs> who am I going to share my trauma with? And I don't know any of these people. Um, so they had us pick something relatively mild and you can use EMDR with phobias, anxieties, things like that. And I was just terrified of my crawl space. Like it was dark. It was enclosed. Like I could not go in my house's crawl space and I needed to. I'm a single adult that owns a home. Um, we did one like 30 minute session of EMDR around my crawl space and I have no problem with it anymore. Um, yeah, so isn't it's, that crazy? Isn't know, that crazy? Yeah. And it doesn't, what I tell people is you don't forget 
mm-hmm. the either the incident or whatever it is you're you're processing but the, the desensitization is is so important in the title you can think of it and your body doesn't yeah go into fight or flight anymore it's just yeah. kind of oh yeah that again okay that um yeah. I, and i will say the I, we call it the the EMDR hangover for the next day or two yes. is yes. real <laughs> for sure. Yes. yes. You will want to strategically plan EMDR sessions. Um, so if visits are a trigger for your child, plan them away from visits. Um, a common thing is to do them on a Friday and then you have a chill weekend at home. Um, be very gentle with your child afterwards. Be gentle with yourself afterwards because you may have a child with some bigger behaviors in those 24 hours afterwards, but it is very effective. Um, I compare it to, if you've ever seen Inside Out, there's that front control room and, and that controls everything. And when a child's had trauma, the trauma is sitting in those control seats. And the goal of EMDR is to move that trauma into that room with all the files in it. So if the child can pull out that memory if they want to, and they might have some emotion about it because they're a human, but they're not going to be derailed by it. They can look at that and say, that was kind of a crappy thing that happened. That makes me sad. That makes me angry. But now I can move along with the rest of my day after thinking about that. Okay, any questions about therapies for older children? I don't think so. Okay, wonderful. If you think of more questions as we go on, we can always jump back to another section too. So this next section, I wanna talk about skills. Um, A lot of our kids are referred for different services that focus on different skill sets rather than um, true therapy, which is more of focusing on cognitions, beliefs, patterns, things like that. So TBRI, I have made yellow, which again, I think someone's gonna crucify me for that. Um, Trust-based relational intervention. It's hard to find certified providers because it's only a training in Texas. It's really expensive. It happens like twice a year and it's a lottery to get in. Um, I would say you can find a fantastic trauma-informed provider who doesn't have TBRI on their website. We actually can't put TBRI on our website even though I've done like 40 hours of TBRI training on my own. Um, It's trauma-informed care 101. Um, Any really well trauma-informed therapist is going to be familiar with TBRI principles, even if that's not the language that they use. Um, You can use it up to about age 11. And I will say this is not therapy. Um, I hear a lot in the community of, oh, get your child into TBRI therapy. It's not therapy. It's parenting skills. But the parent, the child has nothing to do with as far as like, they're not going to the class. They're probably not meeting with the provider. Um, It's parenting skills for you. Um, It teaches the child to trust and to co-regulate. It does not teach them to self-soothe. And they'll, they'll very clearly say that is not the goal. The goal is to co-regulate where I, as caregiver, I am calm and regulated. Now I am regulating you much like an infant has no ability to self-soothe. And so we have to soothe them for them. And we call that as a child becomes older, borrowing responsibility. 
um, or, or, or where um, we soothe an older child who developmentally should be able to self-soothe, but for whatever reason can't. And so they borrow our ability to self-soothe and that can turn into some pretty significant behavior sometimes in their effort to get that need met. Um, I would say with adolescents, we don't want to use TBRI to fidelity. And by that, I mean um, perfectly to what the research says, because there is no research to support it after age 11. Um, I think there was one study that went up to age 12, and they had about a dozen adolescents in a residential treatment facility, and they saw some improvement. Overall, it's not, it's not the most beneficial thing for older children, and it can actually encourage manipulative behaviors in children who have more abstract thoughts. Um, and it can teach our children that they are immune from negative consequences, which with an older child can be dangerous um, because they have more independence. They're going to soccer practice and friends' houses and hanging out around the neighborhood. And if we have taught them that they can have explosive behaviors with no consequences, the police show up at some point, the neighbor calls the cops and bad things can happen. And so we wanna be very careful with our older kids about, yes, we want to build felt safety and trust and co-regulation and things like that, but we wanna be careful how we do it. So um, with older kids, maybe we're talking more about, um, okay, this happened and then this happened and this happened and how'd you feel here and, and what happened here and, and building their insight and holding that for them. Whereas in younger kids, we're just completely self-soothing them and really lowering the bar for them. Um, that is a very nuanced thing. And so I would find a provider who's very well trained um, in trauma-informed parenting or therapeutic parenting um, to find someone that really knows what they're doing with those adolescent kids who we want to teach them healthy social and emotional interactions. Jody uh, from our team has put in the chat, we have used PASS Center in Denver for TBRI. Let's see if we can get a link for that, Jody. We saw Janelle Alfin, but I'm not sure how many patients she's taking right now. We've seen other providers there as well. They are great. I think, and I'll double check on this, but I'm pretty sure with all of the new rules, this is now required for foster parents. Have you, have you heard, Danielle? I have not heard our agency really pushes training for this. And so that might be why we haven't heard because nothing changed. Yeah, um, I think this is now required training for, for all foster parents. We yeah. do not provide it at Foster Source. We have tried to provide it several times. Um, it's like a two or three day training, which is, it's tricky for us because we always do childcare. We, we are not negotiable. We will provide childcare and that's tricky for three days. We've tried to get it to like, hey, can you break it down into a TBRI basics in a two hour class? And they will not allow you to do that. It is yeah. it's owned and off, isn't it owned by the Karen, Karen Purvis? Yeah, it's owned by Texas Christian University. Okay, yeah. Um, so you cannot kind of take it and teach principles of it. You have to teach the full course. Yes. And I have applied three times to go to Texas and get the like train the trainer so I can come back to Colorado and train foster parents in it. And every time I've lost the lottery. Um, so I have some concerns about um, how are we going to get all these foster parents trained in it if it's so hard to become a trainer. Um, 
So that that's a challenge. We'll talk about that next week then when we have Mary Griffin from the state um, yeah. talking about the new rules. Yeah. Um, as a clinic, we own the videos for our staff to use so that they're, we can't say they're TBRI, TBRI trained, but they're TBRI trained. Um, Can you guys put in the chat if you've taken TBRI? I don't know if agencies will have to start buying the video set. They're kind of expensive and then loaning them out. I don't know. Um, but there's yeah, I wonder if many. that's acceptable because we we'd be we'll buy the video sets for sure. Yeah. We, maybe we'll do that and put them in a lending library. Yeah, yeah. Um, last I saw, there were only two TBRI certified providers in all of El Paso County. Um, so we're really in a pickle if DHS have a good plan for this. So. Good times. Okay. Yeah, good times. Good times. <laughs> Okay, Mightier. Um, I really like Mightier. I, I have no affiliation with them, but I really like them. Um, they're a self-service subscription, about $40 a month. Um, the research is for children five to 12 years old. I played it myself. The games are pretty cool. You could convince an older kid to do it, no problem. So the child wears this like Fitbit sort of thing around their wrist. There's a heart rate monitor on this side. No, it does not zap them. Every kid asks me that for some reason. Um, and they play some games that are actually fun. Um, like there's one where you throw cats off a cliff, which I'm here for that. Um, and they can only win the game if they use their coping skills to keep their heart rate low. Um, the game will actually pause if their heart rate gets too high. The game intentionally triggers them and uses what we call biofeedback. So if their heart rate is increasing, um, the game is going to adjust. Or if it's decreasing, the game is going to adjust to give them some neural pathways about how to recognize that feeling in their body and begin to use the coping skills. Um, they collect little creatures that all have a different challenge um, or a different symptom essentially so that they can um, recognize like, oh, I have that symptom too. And this creature is able to use their coping skills. It teaches them different coping skills as the game progresses. They collect points and they can trade it in for different prizes on the tablet, different outfits for their different creatures. Um, it's best when used with a provider or a caregiver because there is a workbook that goes with it. And I don't think the game itself teaches the coping skills fantastically. I think it does a good job of reminding the child of the coping skills if you've already taught them as an adult. Um, they also just launched some family games that for free we were sent um, some different games to play together. Um, before you buy this, ask if your school or any of your providers already offer it. Um, our clinic allows our parents to just use our login and, and the company's okay with us doing that. Um, parents just buy one of these watches. I think they're like 20 bucks or something like that for their home. Um, and it's been a really good tool to encourage those coping skills. Um, it is not a therapy. I would not use this exclusively unless your child has very low symptoms, which is not most of our children in foster care. Um, but it's a really good tool to use in conjunction with a therapy to encourage the practice of those coping skills. Um, it is a newer device. I want to say it's maybe three years old. So the research so far is really promising, but it's, it's not enough research to call evidence-based yet. But the, yeah. the research is sound so far and the theory is sound. I wonder if they would let us have a subscription where we could loan, let people try it. 
Probably. You know, like you said, your your clinic does. Now, this is not the same as I keep seeing these ads for Endeavor. For it's a no. video game for kids with ADHD. No, not the same. And I haven't heard of Endeavor, so it might be the same creators potentially. Um, but I will look into that because I'm curious about that. Um, there's something else. Oh, you can also, as the parent, track their progress on an online portal, um, which is really fun for the child to see, oh, wow, my heart rate was getting out of the, like the, the comfort zone this many times when I started. And now I'm able to keep my heart rate cool. And um, they talk about being cool and hot um, a lot more. And so to see that tangible progress in a graph over time is really exciting for some of the kids. I really encourage them. Okay, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. DBT providers are fairly easy to find. And when I say easy to find on all of this, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you might still have a wait list, but easy is relative these days. Um, I think services have become a lot more challenging to find since COVID started. This is primarily for adolescents to adults. It's very skill-based. So there's four pillars mindfulness, which is living in the present moment, being aware of what you're thinking and how you're feeling and what's happening around you. Interpersonal effectiveness skills, which is basically like people skills, social skills, um, how to get your needs in healthy ways, boundaries, conflict resolution. Distress tolerance, which is when I'm feeling a big emotion, how do I bring myself back down? And emotion regulation, which is on a day-to-day -day basis, how do I keep myself cool? How do I take care of myself? Um, and things like that. It's not specific for trauma, but it's really good when it's used with another therapy. So um, maybe this is what the child uses first before starting EMDR. So maybe they do a few months of DBT to build some of those skills. Um, or in our clinic, sometimes we'll have a client who is working with one of our interns on DBT skills while they're also doing trauma work with another one of our clinicians who does um, that piece of it. That can be um, really helpful. Um, there's excellent research on it for youth with difficulty managing emotions, um, managing emotions, self-harm, eating disorders, impulsivity, bully-like behavior, and poor boundaries, which that's a lot of our foster youth. They're struggling with at least one of those things to some degree. Um, if you hear the term skill building, that can mean different things. Um, it's pretty easy to find providers. Um, they're usually interns or they're bachelor level um, providers. They're not therapists which is fine for what they're providing. Um, it's usually elementary and above, and they'll work on coping skills, boundaries, communication skills, um, how to identify and manage our emotions. Again, <coughs> excuse me, this should only be used in conjunction with an actual therapy as well. Um, so um, this might be a little more eclectic, which I would say eclectic and skill building is fine. Um, the research is limited just because it's hard to research something when it's eclectic. Anecdotally, we're seeing really good results with having our, our youth in skills as well as therapy. Occupational therapy. So when I had my four babies last year, I learned so much about occupational therapy that I had never seen before. It's easy to find providers. You might have a wait, but, but it's easy to find providers. Um, they treat all ages. Um, it does require a referral from the pediatrician, um, and it's really good for sensory regulation. A lot of our kids have some sensory issues. They're really good at building coping skills in our kids, 
because I, as a therapist, I'm so preoccupied with why it's happening um, that sometimes we get lost in the weeds. Whereas occupational therapy says, we don't really care why it's happening. We're just going to help you adapt to your environment and use these skills. Um, they can work on communication skills. Um, my teens have worked on healthy relationships and boundaries with occupational therapy, um, nervous system regulation. Um, all of my teens, they usually have a court order to be in some sort of life skills program, go through occupational therapy. My experience has been some of these other life skill programs created specifically for foster youth. They're not very personalized. Um, I just don't love them. Um, but the occupational therapist will come to your home or go in the community with your child and work on budgeting, grocery shopping, how to plan a meal, cooking. Um, you know, they did some resume building and they looked at colleges together. And so occupational therapy does so much more than what most of us think. Um, they can go in schools, daycare, they can come to the home usually. Um, usually we're looking at 30 minutes a week, once or twice a week, depending on the level of need of your child. And it's relatively short term, which is where I had talked about before. Sometimes we can't avoid short term things. Um, I would say that because this is not really emotion based necessarily, they're not divulging their trauma or things like that to this person. This is probably an okay thing to have be on the shorter term scale. And there's really good research to support it too. Okay, any questions about the skills-based services? I don't think so. I will say most schools for like the elementary level have, um, you know, OT and whatnot, but I find it so strange because in the IEP, it's like, okay, 15 minutes a week of, uh, oh, you know, it's like, really, mm -hmm. is that really gonna do much? Yeah, so that 15 minutes a week usually means we're gonna pull them out every other week. For 30 gotcha. Okay. For 30 um, minutes. Yeah. The school also will only provide occupational therapy if they need it in order to access education. So if you have a child coming in who needs support in life skills, um, just as part of being a normal 16 year old or 17 year old that might emancipate from foster care, the school won't provide occupational therapy for that. Cause that's not interfering with their education. Right. right. Okay. If the child's having so many meltdowns at school that they are being pulled out of class repeatedly or being disruptive or can't learn, then you might be able to get occupational therapy for um, coping skills or social emotional skills. Yeah, and for the younger kids, somebody posted, you know, under the age of three, your local school district connects you with early intervention. You're gonna start at early intervention and they're gonna do a full assessment and let you know um, what you qualify for, for several different therapies actually. Yes. And I will say, if you have an inkling that your child might benefit from these services, I would get on the list now because you might be waiting a while to actually get the service. And we don't want to wait until you're in a crisis point. My strategy, which maybe not the best, but my strategy is um, throw out the net and see what catches pretty early on when you get a child. And then you can decline services later when it's your turn. If it looks like that's not needed anymore. Um, because too often by the time we get approval to get all this stuff done, and then we get on a waiting list, and then we get an evaluation, and then we have to get insurance to do the prior authorization. Exactly. Well, now this place might blow out by that point. 
I completely agree. When we started doing PCIT, we were actually on a two-year wait list for a full psych eval. Yes. And they called and I was like, oh, it's us. And she said, no, no, you're still long down the list for a psych eval. Mm -hmm. However, we have this. Would you like to try this? And we said, absolutely. Yes. So it may, it may open up different possibilities for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speech therapy, I just learned last week can also help with some of those communication skills and boundaries and getting needs met in healthier ways as well. Um, so that may also be an option. Um, they can work on some social emotional stuff too, like understanding other people's words and tones and body language and what that means. Okay, other services, this is kind of a hodgepodge of just some different things that didn't fit beautifully in another category. So IOP or PHP, this is intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization program. They're relatively easy to find. If there's a wait list, it's probably pretty brief. Um, late elementary to adult, it's a half day or a full day program, usually two to three days a week. And this is used for stabilization, or I'm sorry, for two to three weeks. Um, this is for stabilization of a, of a child who has some pretty significant behaviors. Um, if there's suicidal ideation, um, severe self-harm or significant self-harm, um, just really significant poor emotion regulation, um, they might do a few weeks at one of these intensive programs. It does usually require the child to be pulled out of school. Um, so you'll have to decide as a team if that's appropriate or not for your child. And it's usually at a mental health hospital. If your child's um, hospitalized, they'll usually recommend this as a step down um, or it can be used to prevent a hospitalization in some of our kids that are really struggling with big emotions. Um, it's a lot of groups, which may or may not work for some people. Some people love groups, some people hate groups. Um, and it does run the risk of people, of your kids picking up what we might call bad habits and be exposed to some things that maybe they weren't exposed to before. Um, the, the staff should be moderating conversations pretty well in these groups, um, but a child who's never been exposed to an adolescent using substances might be exposed to children doing that. And you just might run into things that you were not ready for your child to hear. Um, however, it is really well-researched for preventing crises and giving that child a little bit of a boost of finding some stabilization in their emotions. Group therapy, um, so PHP IOP is several hours of group, group therapy. I'm thinking like one hour a week or every other week. Easy to find during the school year. They kind of drop off during the summer. Um, it's usually older elementary and up. Um, are, are there by themselves with their peers and younger kids, you'll usually see that they're going to a group with their parents working together. Um, again, if the group is not properly moderated, your kid might be exposed to some things that you didn't want them to hear about necessarily. Um, usually includes art, games, different activities. Um, it's not necessarily we all sit in a circle and talk about our feelings. Um, they usually try to make them pretty fun. Um, it can help a child feel less alone or on the flip side, it can, it can have a child feel like everyone knows their business if they're pretty private or, or don't really trust others. Um, but I think that's one of the most healing things that we can do as humans for each other is say me too. And so 
Um, when our kids, especially our older kids, go to groups where everyone's struggling with something similar, sometimes that can help them to see, okay, I'm not alone in this. Um, I can get through this. And, and that can be really um, encouraging for them. Um, some examples, you might see a DBT skills group for teens, a social skills group for elementary school students, dino school or incredible years for littles and their parents. That's an excellent program if you have somewhere that offers that. Um, you might find that the groups are in the school. And so the school counselors around this time of the year, um, they'll start looking for, okay, what kids might benefit from a group? Um, I would reach out to your school counselor and ask if there's anything that might benefit your child because um, they might not think of your child for whatever reason, either they're quiet and so they think they're doing well or they don't know that they're in foster care or having challenges yet or whatever it is. Um, so let the counselor know that that's something you might be interested in. Um, also consider a group for yourself, support group, parenting skills group, um, whatever it is. Um, these, these tools are not just, or these services are not just for your child, they're to support you as well in your journey. Um, because like Renee said, you're doing the hardest job possible. Um, so it's really important that you have some good support on your end as well. Um, the research is generally supportive, um, but the group does need to be done well for the research to support it. ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. Um, I feel like ABA has become a dirty word in the trauma community. Um, it's easy to find providers, but there may be long wait lists. Um, if you're in Colorado Springs, I found one that has immediate openings right now. So email me and I will give you their information. Um, that's where my girl is going. And I will say um, I've had two of my 14 kids that I would say are appropriate for ABA. Um, it's for toddlers to 17. Medicaid will stop paying for it at 18. So if your kid is like 17 and a half, it might not be worth your time right now. Um, it's intensive. It's a minimum of 10 hours a week up to like 40 plus hours a week, depending on your child's level of need. There's a relatively lengthy evaluation process um, that will determine the level that Medicaid's willing to pay for. You can accept fewer hours. Um, you just can't ask for more hours. And if you accept fewer hours, you might have a problem asking for more in the future because Medicaid will say, oh, you were fine with 10 instead of 20. So just be aware of that. Um, the individual staff in RBT is what they're called, basically follows the child around through their normal life and re reinforces specific skills that they're looking for. This can be in center or it can be community-based, usually in the home, or you know, you can go to the park, go to the zoo, whatever it is. There's a challenge with getting them into the schools. Um, and there's some questions about if that's legal or not for a school to decline an RBT from coming in. Um, I'm in the early stages of learning that for my own child, so stay tuned. Um, it uses a lot of conditioning. So positive and negative reinforcement rewards behavior contingencies to target very specific behaviors. Everything is data tracked and is very specific. Um, they usually pick certain behaviors to focus on at a time. You have to make sure you're going to a trauma informed center though, and that they're willing to work with the rest of the team so that everyone's on the same page about how to interact with a certain behavior. 
Um, so like trauma-informed looks like we don't do negative consequences. We do positive reinforcement um, and rewards and praise and things like that, rather than um, some ABA models will say, well, until you do this, you can't access this thing. Um, and then we'll just sit there and have a tantrum if that's what we need to do. Um, probably not the most trauma-informed thing for our kids. Might be fine for other kids. I'm not gonna comment on that one too much, but um, make sure it's trauma-informed and ask them, what does trauma-informed mean in your clinic? Um, does that mean we did a one-hour workshop two years ago, or does that mean we have ongoing training in this, and the training's actually pretty good? Um, right, because everybody says they're trauma-informed. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so we want to be really careful of, okay, just because it says that on your website, again, you can put whatever you want on your website. Um, what does that actually mean? So this can be helpful for children who have sensory issues, poor social skills, difficulty coping, cognitive delays, and severe behaviors. Um, I would not say ABA is the best thing for our children with trauma, but there are no alternatives that I know of that will give you this many hours of support a week except for ABA. And I have been pushing for something better than ABA, but we just don't have that yet. Um, it can be a sort of respite for parents with a child with severe behaviors. It's, it can be sort of like therapeutic childcare where you know your child is safe, your child's not going to get kicked out, and that they're working on skills at that time so that you can take care of yourself or the other needs in the family um, and in the home during that time. Um, don't sign up for it just for childcare, of course, um, but if you have a child with severe behaviors, you know how hard it is to go to the grocery store to go to the doctor for yourself, to go to the dentist, um, to go to the car wash, um, to get laundry done. And so sometimes you need another set of hands that can come and love on your child for a few hours that you can take care of the rest of the home and then come back to your child feeling refreshed. Um, the research is limited on its efficacy for trauma and there is some controversy around it. So I would be careful with using that. Um, but I would also say, it's okay to use ABA. And I think we've been, at least in my experience has been that we've been told as a foster care community that ABA is wrong um, and that we can't use it. We can use it carefully. Do those providers, I've heard of ABA for like helping them get ready in the morning and things like that. Do they ever go to school with them? Yeah, so there's some challenges with getting them into the school. A lot of districts don't want the liability of an adult that's not their staff being present. And so there are some legal challenges though on whether or not a school can decline a medically necessary service from being accessed. Um, if you want the child to go to the school, you're gonna have to mama bear it and get the GAL and the caseworker to mama bear it with you. Um, it might be possible. And I think now it's more possible than ever because the schools, because of COVID, do not have the paraprofessionals that they need. So if you walk in saying, hey, can we bring our own paraprofessional with us? Um, they might be a little more amenable to that now than they were two years ago. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, anytime I've said, how about a para, it's usually scoffed at, you mm -hmm. know, because they just don't have enough. Exactly. I never thought of trying to bring a private one in. 
yeah, and, and the, the para is the RBT. And so if you are pushing for a para, if your child needs a para at school and the school, they truly do not have enough right now. Um, so it's not like they're hiding them in a closet somewhere. They truly don't have them. It might be a way of um, kind of signing a peace treaty together of, well, what if we bring in our own person? Will you allow that? Um, I, I can't guarantee what they'll say, but you might get a little more traction that way. Okay, medications. This is another big controversial one. Um, I would say use a psychiatrist. We do not have good research on medication use in children. Um, and that makes it really hard. Your child's pediatrician, they're probably wonderful, but they probably took one class on medications, psychotropic medications. So whenever possible, use a psychiatrist. Um, our family uses Bright Futures. We love them. They're wonderful. They do virtual sessions all over the state. Um, make sure you find a good fit as well. They must be trauma-informed. Um, I appreciate a prescriber that's more on the conservative approach. We have all probably heard of or seen kids who they get on one medication, which causes one side effect which leads to another medication and another medication, another medication. And then the medication stopped working because the child enters puberty and their body changes. So now we change the medications up again. And before you know it, you have a 13 year old on, on um, antipsychotics. Um, some kids might need that. However, um, my opinion is we want to have a provider who is well-versed in kids with trauma um, and who also um, isn't going to just throw more meds on board just because there's another side effect. Um, you know, our prescriber also said to us, um, we shouldn't be sedating kids so that they can go see their parents. Um, the child has the right to not be heavily medicated. And if they need to be heavily medicated to see their parents, something needs to change about that dynamic and what's triggering them and what those visits look like to to help them be healthy and safe in those visits without sedating them seven days a week. Um, some providers are quick to diagnose significant conditions such as bipolar disorder in children. Um, there are some diagnoses that across the board, the medical community and the therapeutic community are in agreement should not be diagnosed before certain ages. And so um, I would be wary of a child that has several diagnoses um, or has some pretty heavy duty diagnoses. I will say that sometimes those diagnoses are given so that the medication is now FDA approved for that diagnosis. So for example, if the child needs a mood stabilizer, they might diagnose bipolar disorder in order to have a med approved, um, which that's a whole ethical thing that we could get into about insurance companies another time. Um, if your child starts medication, you'll want to be aware of the black box warnings, which means some of these medications can increase the, the chance of suicidal thoughts. Um, if that happens, it'll probably happen in the thir first 30 days. So be open with your child about how they're feeling, what's going on, things like that. They can also change the seizure threshold, which means if your child abruptly stops that medication, they're at higher risk for seizures, or um, some of them can lead to high cholesterol or different changes in their biochemistry that can increase their chance of seizures. 
Um, so just be very aware of what the side effects are of your child's medication. Um, once they're on some heavy duty medications, it may be hard to wean them off of it. Um, and then at some point we can get into this weird problem of the chicken and, and the egg of, okay, my child's now having this behavior. Are they having that behavior because of trauma, because of adolescence, because of being a kid, or is it a side effect of a medication that's now emerging? Um, and we need to have realistic expectations about the medications. There is no fantastic medication for trauma. Um, and the goal of medications is to take the edge off of the symptoms so that the child can engage in therapy and so that the child can have some success in using their coping skills. And we know that success breeds confidence, breeds more success. Um, so the medications are not going to solve your problems. Um, they may create more problems and they might also give that child a leg up so that all those other services that you're already in can actually do their job. Family preservation, you'll also hear it referred to as family pres. Um, a lot of the bigger clinics will do it, whether they're private or community-based, usually older elementary and above, and it involves whatever family unit the child's involved in. So that might be the foster family, um, that might be the biological family. It's often used for children who are at risk of entering foster care or children who are at risk of um, being institutionalized. So maybe they bounced around a lot of houses and they're pretty significant in their behaviors. Um, and there's some concern about them then going to residential or something like that, family prez might come into a foster home at that point. Um, it's intensive, it's several hours a week for a few months. Um, it's almost like ABA for the parent in some ways. So um, a, a clinician will come in and reinforce those parenting skills in the moment. So that can be really humbling. Um, and often the provider is an intern or they're unlicensed or um, something to that nature. So the provider is likely to be younger than you and may or may not have children. And so um, you have to have a willing spirit for this to work um, because that's hard to have a 22 year old come into your house and tell you how to parent. Um, that's not all of the situations of course, but um, it's hard for anyone to tell us how to parent when we feel like we're doing everything we can. Um, there is a negative stigma towards it in the foster care community. Um, I think that's going away a little bit, but for a while it was seen as um, bad foster parents that need to learn how to parent get referred to family prez. And I don't think that's completely true. I think if you're really overwhelmed and you're in over your head and, and you really want to support this child, I think family prez can be a really good option for some families um, if you can make it work in your schedule. Um, there's some mixed research about its, its benefit. And I think some of that's because for most of, of the families, by the time you get into family preservation, you're already in a crisis. And so if you're already in such a crisis and you bring in a service, automatically the chance of that service working, whatever that means, goes down just because this isn't a mild to moderate problem. Um, that's quite significant if we're at this point. Family therapy, um, I would say is really beneficial for foster families. 
Um, we have a family therapist that comes in to work with myself and whatever children are in my home um, at the time to work on communication, attachment, bonding. They come into the home um, and that's been really helpful um, to have in place even before there's a problem. Um, there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, I'm the identified patient on my family's case, which means I control the confidentiality. Um, and it also means that we don't have to like redo intakes and treatment plans every time I get a new placement. Um, however, um, you can also get it through the child as well. Relatively easy to find a family therapist. Um, you can use it pretty well from elementary and above. Um, it can either be with you and the child or the bio parents and child, probably both at different points. It can include siblings, extended family, if grandma lives with you or if she's involved, um, whatever family means to your household can be involved. Um, and it can be used as well for you to learn some parenting tools in the moment for different behaviors, which is why I like the in-home so much is because you know, when you go to an office, your child may or may not display the behaviors you're referring to. Whereas if you're in the home over time, there's a much greater chance that the child will eventually um, show some of those behaviors and that provider can model for you what to do or they can see what you're doing. And like, I tried that, the textbook was wrong. Um, the training was wrong, that doesn't work. And you guys can pivot together and identify, okay, what's not working about this and what might, um, work better. Um, I would ensure that your provider is attachment-based versus behavior-based. So we're not interested in just changing behavior. We are interested in building trust, safety, um, bonding, attachment. Um, and those are two very different frameworks that therapists work on. Um, a behavior-based method is not wrong. It's just not appropriate for the children in our care. Okay, any questions about some of those services we just talked about? Nope, okay. I don't think so. Okay, so now we'll talk about some higher levels of care. So this is more than what the outpatient level can really provide. So the first one's the emergency department. Um, it's yellow, not because I'm saying don't go to the emergency room, but because there might be a better option for you than the emergency room when your child's having a mental health crisis. Um, so ideally, we only use the emergency room for true mental health crises, such as being actively suicidal, and the child needs medical attention. Maybe they've overdosed, they've cut themselves, maybe they hit their head having a tantrum, whatever it is. Um, going to the emergency room, can be traumatic and there's a lot of germs there. And so if we don't need to go to the emergency room, um, try some other options. Of course, if you do need to go to the emergency room, go. Um, the staff there may or may not be well-trained. Um, sometimes, I think this is getting better, but sometimes mental health crises coming in the emergency room can be treated with almost annoyance. And um, that's hard for you as a parent and for the child. Um, so a crisis walk-in center, I'm gonna go straight to that page, um, might be a better option if your child does not need medical attention. Um, so the information for the, the Colorado Crisis Services is over here. Um, crisis centers are completely free. They can be admitted to a higher level of care, such as a hospital if needed, or they can offer other supportive 
services like in-home respite, which I believe with Medicaid, you can only access in-home respite through a crisis center, um, which means that someone would come to your home and play with your kid for a few hours so you can kind of get a break. Um, they can support the child in using coping skills. Um, they can help resolve conflicts together as a family. Um, whatever mental health need, except for medication, that is um, urgent, um, you can use the walk-in center for. It's less traumatic. They're usually set up like living rooms. Um, they're specifically trained to handle these crises they just don't have medical staff readily available. Um, so if your child needs medical attention, this would not be the place to go. They're just going to call an ambulance and send them out. Um, expect to be there at least two or more hours, potentially six to eight hours if your child's being admitted to the hospital. Um, and usually you can't just drop off your kid. You have to stay the whole time or maybe you and another parent can swap out. Um, you should contact your caseworker and your agency if you ever bring your child to an emergency room or a crisis walk-in center. Okay, so hospitalization, um, the ability to find a bed varies. So I know in Colorado Springs, um, we're often sending kids up to Denver and vice versa, just depending on who has beds available. Um, I don't know of anywhere in the state taking anyone six and younger for uh, mental health hospitalizations. Um, seven and up is the only ages I know of. Um, hospitalization, if your child needs it, they need it. Um, but it also should really be a last resort. Um, it is not respite. Um, it is not, we don't know what to do. So we're going to do this. Um, cause it can be very traumatic for a child to be in a hospital setting by themselves for three to five days. Um, especially when, again, they might be exposed to some scary stuff that they haven't been exposed to before. Well, and this isn't, there's no treatment, right? They're just going to stabilize the child and then release them. Yep. So they are not going to work on trauma. They're going to do some coping skills group, which if you're at this level of care, your child probably knows coping skills, but doesn't use them. Um, so another coping skills group who had a deep breathe, not going to do a whole lot. Um, they'll probably change medications while your child is in treatment. Um, but really the goal is the research shows that if you're going to commit suicide, it's most likely to happen within the first 24 hours. And so we kind of just hold people for a few days until they chill out. Um, it's not real treatment. Um, so just be careful with that. I think there's an idea that well, hospitals help people, they fix people. And, and that's true when you have like a bacterial infection and you need IV antibiotics, um, this is not that. Um, you will not see potentially a huge improvement in your child when they come out of hospitalization unless they're acutely suicidal. Um, and and the, the goal is stabilization. Um, so just be careful about what your expectations are of your child being hospitalized. Um, and our child with attachment wounds, that's, that's tricky to have a caregiver drop them off for three to five days at a scary place too. Um, but again, if your kid needs that, then they need that. Yeah. Somebody said, I think, but not hundred percent sure that Gary Pavilion at Children's Hospital can take younger kids if necessary, but it's really unusual to need mental health hospitalization under the age of seven. Yes. Yes. Um, usually a child six and below that's needing mental health hospitalization is having a bizarre reaction to a medication. 
um, versus like being acutely suicidal. Um, so this should really only be used if your child's actively suicidal. Um, I'm in some of those Facebook groups, like the National Foster Parent Support Groups, and I see a lot recommendations to take them to the hospital to be hospitalized because they're having tantrums or meltdowns or things of that nature, which are challenging, but we have other services to help with that versus going to a hospital. Um, there are some hospitals in the state that will offer EMDR while they're hospitalized. Do not allow your child to do EMDR while they are hospitalized. Um, EMDR should only be used when a child is stable and feels safe, which is not what's happening if you're needing to be hospitalized and watched 24 seven. Um, residential treatment centers also should be a last resort for our kids with trauma and attachment issues. Um, there are long wait lists, usually again, only ages seven and up, very difficult to get covered by insurance. Um, usually the child needs a long list of failed treatments uh, at every level. So outpatient, intensive, um, inpatient, inpatient medications, groups, the whole thing needs to be failed multiple times to meet criteria for residential. Um, again, it can be a traumatic experience for a child. The center may or may not be trauma-informed. Um, I don't know of any great trauma-informed residential treatment centers in Colorado. Um, it also really complicates their ability to have contact with loved ones. And so that's just not a great dynamic for a kid with attachment wounds. Um, it usually lasts three to 12 months, which is very significant for a child. Um, that may be 10% of their life if they're staying for 10 months and they're 10 years old. Um, and it may institutionalize the child where it becomes really hard to re-enter normal life and, and engage with people in a typical way. And uh, it's almost like re-entry from prison. Some, some of my adolescents have compared it to. Um, that they have like lost time of their childhood. They went into residential and the world was one way and they came out a year later and the world was another way. Um, so that can be really challenging. Um, however, it can help a child with severe and persistent behaviors learn to cope if we're at the last resort point. Well, and this will come into play with Family First, the new federal legislation yes. that is being enacted in October. That uh, legislation requires uh, kids in care to step down, to step out of residential treatment and into foster homes. So you will be being asked to take children coming down from residential treatment. Mm -hmm. um, we can, we'll, we'll talk about that more in our family's first training. And then there's new stipulations for going into treatment. I think the, the, isn't the max going to be like 14 days? It's, there are big, big changes re regarding residential treatment coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate less institutionalizing of children. And this means children who truly need it are going to miss out. Um, so this is where I would say ABA comes in. The girl I have right now, she's like 30 seconds away from going to residential. And so that's why we said, okay, let's do ABA so that she's having so much therapeutic support on top of all these other services she's getting that we can truly say we've tried everything before we look at residential. Walking crisis, we talked about mobile crisis. Um, if you haven't yet, ask 
your agency, your caseworker, wherever your child's receiving therapy, and the county, um, is there a mobile crisis response place that I can call? That will either be moderated through the sheriff's department, um, through county DHS, potentially through your agency if you're with a larger agency, um, or sometimes with larger mental health clinics. Um, so ask now, have that number now before you need it. Hopefully you never need it, but if you do, you have it. Um, if you've ever had a child tantruming and like having some severe behaviors, you can't get them into the car. Um, and so you can call crisis mobile response and they will come to you wherever the child is. They will help to de-escalate the child and potentially the rest of the family. That might be a really scary experience for everyone involved. Um, they can help connect you to appropriate resources. They'll probably call you later and check in on you. <laughs> they may or may not be able to admit to a higher level of care. Um, if your agency has some sort of crisis number, they probably can't, whereas um, the sheriff department who runs it, um, they might be able to, well, they can. Um, and so um, if you call 911 asking for the crisis mobile response, if your area has one and this is 911 worthy, they will send um, a police officer or a sheriff, um, a licensed social worker, um, as well as an EMT or a paramedic out to your home. Um, usually they come in like a minivan rather than like the lights and sirens and the whole thing. Um, so it's a little bit less traumatic. Um, and then they can go from there or your agency or wherever you're getting therapy might have crisis staff that can help de-escalate your child as well. Um, so the, the mobile crisis can mean different things depending on which agency is providing it, but see who has it now before you need it and have that number in your phone, on your fridge, wherever your babysitter finds numbers, um, just have that ready. Um, I will say sometimes, okay, this doesn't make sense because it's a crisis, but sometimes there's quite a wait to get them to actually come to you. It doesn't make sense, but it is what it is. Okay, any questions about some of those other services that we've talked about? Not currently, no. Okay. So we have to find that fine line between where can my child live a normal life and be supported in the way they need to be. For some kids, that's once a week therapy. For other kids, that's 30 hours a week of therapy. And so you also have to look at what's sustainable for your family. You don't want to sign up for a million services. Um, and then you can't like live life and like go to the doctor and do anything like that. Also consider, is this a short-term service and we can make it work for three months or is this permanent? And no, we can't make that work long-term. Are these services necessary? Are they efficient? Are multiple services doing multiple things or are they all doing the same thing? And now we have too many hands in the pot and we've really complicated our case. When should I find a good provider? I would say now, if you don't have a child in your home, start making those phone calls and building relationships with some of the clinics in your area so that when a caseworker comes and drops off a child, you know exactly who you're calling right away. Your caseworker is going to give you a phone number or phone numbers for who to call. They don't know who to call. Um, you need to really do the research about who and how and where um, and kind of take ownership over that. DHS, I believe, is obligated to give you the people that they are contracted with. Their contracts are another pay to play. Um, you have to have an extremely high insurance level, um, like a malpractice HIPAA insurance thing that is so expensive that clinics my size, we have seven people on staff, we can't afford it. 
um, which means you're probably going to end up at the community mental health clinic with that high turnover. So how to find a good provider. Um, Psychology Today is one option. Try to avoid community mental health centers wherever possible because of the issues we've talked about. Um, our kids just need something a little more specialized. Um, they should be willing to do a free phone consultation, ask about their availability. Is it virtual? Is it in person? Is it a six month wait list? Um, if you need to get on wait lists, get on 10 wait lists um, and see who calls you back first. What training or experience do you have in treating children in foster care or who are adopted? This is a very niche thing um, and has a lot of language and backstory to it. So if you can find someone who has experience with it, that'd be awesome. Um, ask about a wait list. And if they can't help, they probably know someone who can. So always ask. Um, so ask, what does trauma-informed mean? And who are the authors or researchers they subscribe to? Um, sometimes I'll hear, well, if they don't follow Bessel van der Kolk, they're not good. Well, no, there's, there's several different people that they might subscribe to and they're all fine. Um, so here's just some examples. Um, ask them about their understanding of attachment theory. Do they uh, subscribe to polyvagal theory? What are their beliefs of how trauma affects the brain? Um, what are the modalities and interventions they use? Preferably they have two or three um, so that they can pivot if it's not working rather than having to discharge your child and start all over if it's not working. But then also ask what's their experience, what's their training in that? Again, was it a one day workshop or has it been quite expensive? Are all of their staff trauma-informed or just the primary therapist? This is going to be important too. If the family therapist on the team is not, that's not gonna work. If the skills person is not, that's probably not gonna work. Um, so make sure everyone on the child's team is trauma-informed. Um, ask about safety. What are the protocols if a dangerous biological parent shows up? How will they protect your safety name and address, et cetera, if they request medical records? So mom has the bio, bio mom has the right to request medical records. Is your address going to show up at the top of that? That's a problem. How will they verify who you are on the phone? I lose my mind every time they say, oh, do you still live on First Street? Okay, well, now bio mom calls in. She now knows what street I live on. Um, so ask some things like that. Do they understand land and therapeutic privilege? We'll get to that in a future slide. But do they understand, you know, what's the legality and the legal issues in foster care? And what are their crisis procedures? Is there an after hours number? Or where do they refer you to after hours if they don't have their own in-house one? Which is not uncommon for them to not have one themselves. Um, are they willing to include you and the bio parents as appropriate? Are they willing to attend staffings? Are they willing to coordinate care with all the other providers? Um, are you able to have as many services in-house as possible so you're not driving to like 10 different clinics across the city and you know, getting a part-time job in case management yourself? And what is their plan for continued care if the child moves? In Colorado, we have several different regions of Medicaid and find out what the region is for your county as well as the county the child lives in and make sure that they're in network with both of those counties wherever possible so that the child can continue virtual services if they choose to or if that's appropriate without losing that provider. Um, what are their policies and comfort level around testifying if they were to need to? 
Uh, I know we're running out of time, so I'm kind of breezing through this last part. Um, is the provider knowledgeable how to bill Medicaid? You should never get a bill for Medicaid services and the county should never be paying for Medicaid services. Your child can lose their Medicaid for life if the county uses core dollars to pay for a service that Medicaid will pay for. So be very careful about that. That's not your responsibility. However, it still kind of is because these are the children in our care. Um, understand what your benefits are for your insurance if you ever needed support around your child. Um, and just be aware again of those regions. Um, the region may switch for your child if you switch their um, primary care provider, their pediatrician. Making the most of your providers. What is land? So who holds decision-making? Land is who gets to hold therapeutic privilege, so who gets consent to services, as well as who gets to consent to confidentiality. So my child in my home, I know nothing about what she's doing in therapy because BioMom holds land and BioMom has not signed releases of, releases of information so I can know what's happening in these therapeutic services. Um, so that can complicate things because you have a child in your home that you know nothing what they're doing in therapy. So I, the parent will usually hold therapeutic privilege. If the parent's not involved, the GAL will hold therapeutic privilege. The child is 12 and older and reasonably competent, which like the bar is low on 12 year olds being competent, just as all 12 year olds, um, the child will hold their privilege which is 12. In Colorado at 12, they have mental health decision-making rights, which means um, your child can decide to go to therapy without your consent. Um, the therapist can only tell you that, yes, the child is here. Um, and that's pretty much it. The child will also decide if they are willing to have their therapeutic information disclosed to their team or not. This can become a bit of an issue um, when the caseworker needs information. Um, and so sometimes their court order might be involved and things like that, and it can get messy fast. Um, so always ask as soon as you get a child who holds land, who signs the papers for therapeutic services. Um, make sure you're inviting your staff to meetings. Um, the caseworker may not think to invite them. So if you want them there, you'll have to send that Zoom link or whatever it is. Keep them updated on changes at school, at home, maybe keep a list on your phone of things you want to address with the providers. Maybe you send out a weekly email to all of the providers all at once, um, whatever it takes to have everyone on the same page. Ask questions. So generally speaking, they're not gonna tell you specifics, but generally speaking, how is my child doing in therapy? What are they working on? What's the treatment plan? What services or modalities, um, interventions are you using? Um, should I expect my child to get worse before they get better? That often happens in trauma processing. And ask them, do you have any books, podcasts, videos, anything like that that you would recommend for me as a parent? Okay. Sorry, I breezed through that last few minutes. Um, okay, so much amazing information. We need all of that information. Um, awesome. I don't think we have any additional questions. Uh, I did remind everyone that all of these slides are uploaded in the handouts tab in the classroom because that was just a ton of good, good things there on those last few slides. So they can go and review those later when they have time. Um, thank you, Danielle. That was yes, awesome. You. Do, uh, you can stop sharing and we'll have Anna from the team 
come on video and walk us through finding our certificates today in the classroom. Go ahead, Anna. Hi, everyone. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Okay, so this is our verification code for today. Um, so if you can take a look at that, jot it down somewhere, it is all capital letters, so make sure you enter it as you see it. And I'll put it back up on the screen. DBTR, DBTR, all capital letters. And I'll put it back up on the screen. Um, but first we're gonna go through and talk about how we get our certificate. All right, so you all should see um, the screen where you logged on to the webinar this morning. I still see the code. Anyone else Ooh. just see the code? Here I can reshare. Okay. All right, can you see it now? There's yes. the dashboard, yes. Perfect, okay. So this is the screen that you should see once you logged onto the webinar. So we'll see this first green check. So the next thing that you're gonna to wanna to do is you're gonna to wanna to come in and type in DBTR, all caps, and we'll submit that. This verification, successful, beautiful. We have our second check. The next thing you need to do is fill out the survey. So you'll go through, tell us what county you are certified through or CPA. And I'm just gonna answer these to show you what comes next. And keep in mind, there's there's hints above each question. This question is agency specific, not training specific. So some are specific to the agency and some are specific to the training. Your feedback is so helpful for us, particularly in collecting funding. So we really appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to fill that out. Yeah. All right, so once you get to the end, you'll click the finish button. All right, and then it says, thanks for completing the survey. And what you wanna see is these three green check marks. And once you see that, you'll see that you can access your certificate. Now you need to go to view or print your certificate and it'll open up. Yep, there we go. So it'll open up in a new window. It shows you your certificate. You need to view or print your certificate to get this last green check mark. If you don't do this, you cannot access your certificate. It won't show up in your previous certificates. It won't show up in your, um, uh, it won't show up in your learning source where all of your other certificates are until you click view or print. Yes, correct. We want four green checks there. Do you want to click over to handouts real quick so we can show them up there? See up there where it says handouts, guys? Yep. There is the presentation. Mm -hmm. So you can um, go back and look at that anytime. And then can you show us where our certificates are archived? Yes. I am a little bit new to this myself, so let me find it. I think you go over to dashboard on the left. And then transcripts and achievements. And we see that I have my certificate from this class. So these are always in your dashboard, friends. So if you're recertifying, you know, eight months from now, don't worry about losing this. It's going to be in your 
in your dashboard. So thank you very much, Anna, and you can stop recording. Awesome.